You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro, and thanks for listening. What I do to prepare my program each week is during the uh, several days before the program, I gather articles, news articles, or I take notes as I listen to the news, and I have all these things laid out on the table before me so that I can take from that information and say in my own words what I want to say. Once in a while, I come across an article that almost word for word says what I want to have, I have to say, and I can't do better than the author of the article itself. But I can't simply steal the article. I have to more or less read it by add my own thoughts as I read it. And that's what happened this week. I came across an article by a man named Douglas Altabef, A-L-T-A-B-E-F. And he is the chairman of the board of an organization called Tier 2 and the director of the Israel Independence Fund. And he wrote an article, and the title of the article is There Is No Either Or. And I agree just about 100% with what he says. And more or less, I'm not going to read the article, but I want to give over to my listeners pretty much what the article says, because his ideas are essentially my ideas, and I think they're important. And he notes that it's become increasingly clear to those who have protesting and demonstrating for and against what's happening in Israel that the real issue is not a political one, it is an existential one. Because what they're struggling about in the streets week after week is what kind of a nation should Israel be? It's not a question of one law or another law or exceptions to the law. The bottom line is, who are we as a nation, the Jews here in Eretz Israel? The problem is that the choice has been set up very crudely. Either the Western cosmopolitanism of a place like Tel Aviv, which is secular. If you go to Tel Aviv on Shabbat, you wouldn't know it is Shabbat. Or religious, or theocratic, Torah-dominated world of Jerusalem, where I live. Even in the area of, of Jerusalem, where I live, which, if you know Jerusalem, is near the Imbal Hotel. It is not a particularly religious area, but the streets are quiet on Shabbat. There's a tremendous difference between the traffic during the week, all times of the day, and the traffic on Shabbat. Totally different. So there is a sense that we have to make a choice. There is an inevitable choice. 
So what happens is when you believe in things like inevitable choices, you, you essentially believe in a scorched earth policy to the other side. If you see the other side is representing a future that you don't want at all, then you have to be fairly, almost violent in the way that you disagree. You have to stop the other side. So what we have here, according to Altabef, is a basic thing is a failure of imagination. It is a failure of imagination, of history, and even more so, it's a, a failure of self-awareness. Because this either-or either dichotomy simply is not Jewish. It doesn't do justice to the uniqueness of the Jewish people, and we are indeed a special people. For example, we're the only people on the face of the earth who were kicked out of our homeland for almost 2,000 years and came back. And we, we worship the same God and honor the same traditions that our forefathers did 3,000 years ago. There's nobody else like that in the world. Now, what's happening now is that the people are looking for a choice. Should we embrace the sameness of the rest of the world, particularly the West, which is what the people, many people here, for example, Tel Aviv, want to do? They want to be a Western state. That the uh, the, the, the reason that people seem to forget that the only reason they're here to bemoan their fate in an actual Jewish state is because their very own ancestors chose to be a people different, and that's why they came here. Didn't come to Israel because they wanted to be like everybody else. If they did, they would have gone elsewhere. Their ancestors would not kiss the cross nor drop their faith in order to get tenure at a university or submitted to all kind of, uh, um, subjected to all kind of things happening in the Islamic world. People came here because they wanted to be in a Jewish state. So what's happening is, think what our ancestors would say if they saw the way we are behaving now. They would say, we sacrificed, and now you're going to turn your back on our tradition? Now, it's true that many people here don't turn their back on the religion. They simply know nothing about it. That's the fault of the Israeli educational system. I could cite a lot of examples. Uh, I'll give you another, just a quick one. Uh, one time, my son Yasu, when he was a kid, he was studying in yeshiva, and I took him to school in the morning, and he was with us in a carpool, myself and my fellow workers who were going to uh, Israel Aircraft, and yes, he got off before, some, uh, one of the stops before we got to Israel Aircraft, and after he got out of the car, and my, my kid was sort of sloppy, and he, his tzitzes, his arbacantus was hanging out, and the, one of the fellows in the back seat, a guy with a doctorate from Weizmann Institute in Physics, a man in his 
early 30s said to me, what are those fringes hanging out of your kid's shirt? He had no idea what an arbor was or what tzitzit were. In other words, I don't ask that a person be religious. I want them to know what it's about. That's our responsibility. Sadly, many on the barricades have no awareness of any of this. They have no awareness uh, of Judaism. And they were raised without that education. They were supposed to be the new Jews. The difference is that their parents or grandparents were members of the founding generation of Israel that were steeped in Jewish learning and literacy. Even if they had rejected religious observance, they knew what it was. Now their kids and their grandchildren had received no Jewish education and were essentially raised with contempt for the Jewish religion as an old world vestige that only succeeded in contributing to the marginalization and oppression of the Jews. Now, these new Jews are visible, particularly in areas like Tel Aviv, and they're angry. They come to protest as they face the prospect that the old secular Israel that they grew up in and defended for many wars, hard wars like the Yom Kippur War, may be disappearing, and it become, the state may become more religious in a religion that they deal, really don't know much about. The truth of the matter is, and I believe, that the vast majority of, of Israelis really do understand. They understand that they are a unique people. In other words, it's not that we're better than anybody else. We're simply different. We have the great gift of membership in the Jewish people that contrary to the rules of history, indeed the, even the contrary to the laws of nature, we have managed to survive and reconstruct ourselves in our ancestral homeland. Nobody else has done that. So, what's happening to the younger genera generation? There are some things we can be optimistic about. One is that surveys consistently show that Israelis are becoming increasingly traditional. I don't say religious, I'm saying traditional. Traditional means like lighting candles Friday night, even before you go out to a show, or making kiddish Friday night, even before you go out to a show. And uh, in other words, they want something Jewish in their lives. In other words, they have awareness and respect. It means an appreciation of what it means to be Jewish and a desire to make sure their children share that appreciation. So one can say that the rise of traditionalism mirrors the coming of age of particularly that part of the Israeli community that we call the Mizrahi. These are Jews from Muslim lands who brought with them a profound immersion in Jewish tradition as well as a remarkable ability to tolerate the variations of that expression by their fellows. 
But one thing I found interesting in Israel, and I'm an Ashkenazi, is that the Ashkenazim are much less tolerant than the Mizrahim are, particularly when it comes to religion. You know, somebody once, almost 50 years ago, somebody described the difference to me. He said, an Ashkenazi whose son is not religious uh, and his son doesn't live near his parents will say to uh, his son, I don't want you to come to my house on Shabbat because I know you'll drive. And then uh, Mizrahi will say, I'd like you to see me. I'd like to see you at my house on Shabbat. I don't care how you get here. In other words, park the car around the corner. I don't want you to see you driving the car, but I want you to be home for a traditional Shabbat. That was said to me almost 50 years ago, and I think it really describes the difference between the Mizrahi and the Ashkenazi. That's the way it is. They have no interest in a theocracy. They do have a profound interest in making sure that Israel continues to reflect Jewish values as the only Jewish state. Now, that's one trajectory. The other trajectory the majority of the country is embracing is desire, the desire for Jewish sovereignty and control. One of the greatest lessons of the election last November was a recognition of how strong the desire of voters was for Israel to assert control over its territory and over its destiny. This is not the politics of fear. It's not the politics of accommodation. It's the policies of, uh, it's not the policies of the Peace Now movement, nor the Oslo Agreement, nor of those uh, who, who offered to give up the Temple Mount in a vain attempt to create some kind of calm and acceptance. Not at all. Younger Jews today see Zionism as a work in progress, but a successful work in progress. They want to go from strength to strength, and that means building and securing Israel both on the Mediterranean coast and in the hills of the Shomron, where my kids live now and where I lived for many years. Now, the worldview presented by a great many of the protesters, particularly of the older ones, is sort of a world of weakness. They have anointed the Supreme Court to be their saviors, oblivious or uncaring of the reality that the court has become a tainted institution, bloated with its own oligarchic omnipotence. So, the protesters are clinging to the hope that true democratic decision-making can be thwarted and that the, the clock it can be controlled by the Supreme Court, that the demographic clock can be stopped, and that a world that has passed can somehow be recovered. So, that is what many people, they like the way it is when the Supreme Court essentially was the strongest branch of the government. 
in America, you have this the uh, the legislature, you have the administration, you have the judicial. In Israel, the legislature uh, is tied together with the executive, and there are only really two branches of government: the executive, legislative, and the judicial. And the judicial part of that of that uh, balance has been broken over the last 20 to 30 years. So the, uh, the, the, you can't stop the clock. The, 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 some people have no idea of who they really are and the, what a magnificent heritage we have and that we have to maintain. So we owe it not just to ourselves, but not just to our children, but in a sense, we owe it even to our ancestors and those who came before us. There is the inescapable importance of the mission to build, secure, and cherish a Jewish state in the land of Israel. This is the only Jewish state. This is the only land of Israel. And we have to maintain its Jewishness. I do not mean, I certainly do not mean that everybody has to be religious in all particulars. But when you go out on a Shabbat, on a Saturday, you have to know it's a Jewish date. I always tell people that when I was on Shlichut, or when I was working for the Jewish agency, I was working in the city of Philadelphia, and I, I, work, I lived in uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And to my great surprise, and I don't know how true this is in many American communities, but the public buses in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, did not run on Sunday. Sunday was the day of rest, and it was the day of rest for public transportation. And nobody complained about it. That doesn't mean that everybody there was a religious Christian. On the contrary, many people weren't religious at all. But they knew they had to symbolize what it meant to be in a Christian country. It, it does not mean they have to impose their religion on anybody. It means that when you get up in the morning and you walk out on the street, you have to know it's Sunday. It's the formal day of rest. The same thing I feel should be here. Shabbat is the traditional day of rest of the Jewish people. When you walk out to the public square on Shabbat morning, you have to know that you are in a Jewish country. And it's true, by the way, where I live in Jerusalem. And I live in a very busy area of downtown Jerusalem. Uh, I live right across the street from the Ibnbal Hotel, which is a pretty busy place. When I walk out on Shabbat morning, I know it is Shabbat. There is very little traffic. As a matter of fact, the primary traffic, the little bit of what there is, is Arab women learning how to drive. <laughs> very interesting phenomenon. At any rate, when you walk out in the street, you have to know what day it is. And Shabbat has to be different.
doesn't mean you have to be religious, but you have to know who you are. And the public thoroughfare has to reflect who we are and where we came from and hopefully where we are going. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Hi, I'm Rabbi David Aaron. The soul basics are the most profound, the most essential, and yet often the most neglected in our education. Join me for Soul Talk on Israel's News Talk Radio and discover the secrets to love, spiritual growth, and personal power. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to do a number of items uh, in which I call uh, Under the Radar. These are items that uh, have absolutely nothing to do with each other, but they describe life in Israel and in the Jewish world, and uh, they don't get the big headlines. And I think it's important for the listeners to uh, hear these things because they sort of add color to what's happening in Jewish life. As again, they're not related to each other. The first item was in the paper about a week ago, and it said, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his wife Sarah will be moving into Jerusalem's luxury Waldorf Astoria Hotel for an unspecified period. This was in the newspaper Ma'ariv. According to the report, the government approved a plush suite as accommodation for the couple that includes an attached office. And now I quote what it said. Under the direction of the security officials and in light of the increasing threats against Prime Minister Netanyahu, security arrangements are being made around his apartment in Jerusalem that require him to stay several days away from his apartment and a place approved by the security officials and the prime minister's office. That was a statement from the government. By the way, um, the uh, prime minister's residence, which is not far away from where I live, it's about a 10-minute walk. It's been under, um, I don't want to say construction, I guess, uh, they're arranging for him to live there for at least a couple of years. So it's not ready, and he's moving into the Waldorf Astoria, which is also not far, far away from where I live. The Jerusalem's Waldorf Astoria is owned by the Hilton chain. Prices, here's the interesting part, prices for a couple range between $2,650 per day and eleven thousand three hundred and seventy-three I'm sorry, um, lirot, uh, Israeli uh, pounds, uh, shekels, two thousand six hundred and fifty, and eleven thousand three hundred and seventy-three per night. Considering in the Netanyahu's will be staying in a suite, their estimated cost to the taxpayer is approximately. 3,791 shekels per night, or $1,000 per night. So that's uh, under the headlines. It was in the newspaper on page 7 at the bottom. So our, our, our um, 
royal couple is going to cost us a thousand bucks a night uh, to make sure that they're nice and safe until their place is ready, the official residence. And uh, knowing Sarah, as uh, we seem to know her, I'm sure that she's not in a hurry to have her regular residence ready. That's item number one. The next item, absolutely nothing to do with the previous item, but something which I think the listeners should be interested in. It's interesting It's uh, that uh, the people who are on all sides of the political spectrum uh, look upon their service to the country as something very important. I mean, in particular, um, reserve duty. It's only in reserve duty that we have witnessed people from all walks of Israel life joined together. It doesn't matter if it's an Israeli is male or female, rich or poor, Mizrahi or Ashkenazi or Jewish and not Jewish. I've served with uh, Bedouin and I have served with Druze. And when they're willing to serve in reserve duty together, they are unified for a common purpose. And it's it's interesting. You find when you're in reserve duty, you would take people who are ideologically uh, conservative or liberal, and uh, you don't always agree with everyone that you're serving with. But it's really important because what you're doing is serving the entire country. Uh, I've served with non-Jewish Israelis, secular Israelis, and religious Israelis, mostly non-Jewish, and found they're all equally ready to do whatever is necessary for the defense of the country. This, it doesn't really matter what one's own personal background or beliefs are when serving. What matters is their reason for serving, and that reason is protection of our common homeland. The, uh, the truth of the matter is, when you serve in the reserved uh, duty, and you get a chance to meet people from all walks of life that you would never meet normally, you you see people who are beautifully unified in the common endeavor of preserving our collective existence. Now, the true value of reserve duty can be seen in how it allows us to live our own lives and together with others which is something we can never take for granted. We have a collective history. As I've served, as I said before, I've served with all kinds of people, and it gives me a better feeling for the entire country itself. Now, I want to move on to the next item. As I said, not related to the previous ones, which I found almost humorous. A major protest is being held uh, at the National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir's home in Kiryat Arba. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the protest was held, I, I believe, last Friday. I saw the news when it was going to be uh, held. The, uh, an organization called Meridim which is, uh, organizes uh, weekly protests outside Prime Minister Netanyahu's residence here in Jerusalem, has organized a rally and arranged for buses to bring participants from Tel Aviv, from Jerusalem, and from Haifa, 
at least 28 groups were planned uh, to be in this demonstration, including a, in groups with names like Breaking the Silence, Standing Together, Peace Now, and Combatants for Peace. The uh, uh, One of the sp spokesmen said there's a growing awareness that the Messianic settler movement is beyond is behind the judicial overhaul, and so it's imperative to protest in the West Bank outside the ministers' uh, houses. Now, the, um, the the event had to be approved by the police, and it's very interesting that the that that that's essentially the news item. But here's what's interesting about it. First of all, they the the people apparently on the left think that. The, the settler movement is messianic. That was the word in their statement. There's a growing awareness that the messianic settler movement is beyond the judicial overall. Now, I myself was a settler. I still have children who are settlers. I do not consider myself in any way, shape, or form as being messianic. So the the way they look at this situation is, I think, wrong. That's first of all. And second of all, and this is the part I find uh, uh, not political, but rather amusing. These people are going to Kiryat Arba, which is Hebron. Now, I, I have been there on a number of occasions. Ben Greer lives in a place that it's separated even from the major Jewish part of Hebron. Hebron is primarily, or in Hebron, in English, uh, it's primarily an Arab city. There's over 100,000 Arab residents. There is a relatively small section which is uh, called, um, which is Jewish. And outside of Hebron is a section which is completely Jewish called Kiryat Arba. Now, Interestingly enough, Ben Gvir himself lives in a section that's almost in the Arab area, and it's really hard to get there. It's protected by uh, by the army. So, because you know he's a right winger, we all know that. What's funny is these people from Peace Now and these other organizations who have probably never in their lives been in the ancient patriarchal city of Hebron, are now going there to protest against the Ben-Gvir. So it is their protest against Ben-Gvir is probably bringing many of, them for the, many of them for the first time in their lives to the ancient Jewish cemetery where our forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their wives are buried. And because of their reform protest, they were doing something that Jewish uh, uh, Jews of religious background have been doing for years. And even before the state of Israel came into being, people went there to endanger their own lives to go to visit the graves of our forefathers and now the protesters are going there for the first time in their lives to protest. So they're doing something that religious Jews have loved to do for years, and they're doing it for a completely different reason. But in the end, final analysis, they're doing the exact same thing. So I find that extremely interesting, really. Now I move to another topic. 
uh, having to do with something that occurred in Poland. Before the Holocaust, the population of the town of Chmielnik, Poland, I, I hope I pronounce it correctly, is C-H-M-I-E-L-N-I-K, so I think it's Chmielnik. It was about 80% Jewish. The uh, Sephardi Jews who were expelled from Spain during the Inquisition settled in Chmielnik and eventually built a synagogue in 1638. After the war, four Jews remained. Four. Today, the former synagogue houses a museum of the town's Jewish life and history. Now, another Jewish heritage site has been discovered in this little Polish town, uh, completely unexpected. A few years ago, a businessman from there purchased a former nightclub that's been closed for 15 years. When he opened the door to the basement of his new property, he discovered something unexpected. He found a Jewish ritual bath. He found what's known as a mikvah. The bath's blue and white floor tiles are still there, and there are stars of David on the wall. And there's a smaller mikvah uh, in, an, in a neighboring room. Now, there is a gentleman named Bulke who advocates for the preservation of Jewish heritage in Poland, and he had an interview with Haaretz newspaper here in Israel, and he said, you enter the basement and you're in another world. It's like a time capsule. Just up the stairs from the mikveh, which is full of water, are remnants of a former Sphinx club, a strip club, a sign for Heineken beer, a pole for strippers, decorations of ancient Egypt, and, uh, and this is the situation. Now, it turns out that the, the fellow who was interviewed, uh, who operates a funeral home in a nearby place, and the nearby place, by the way, is Kielce, K-I-E-L-C-E, and that's a site of a 1946 pogrom after the First World War in which 42 Jews were killed. So they're hoping to turn this mikvah into a tourist attraction, possibly a museum. So the, what they're trying to do now is encourage people to remember the past, and they, they want to preserve Jewish um, places really in unheard of places, but uh, as, as I was reading the article, I couldn't even, I wasn't sure how to pronounce the name. So here you have a place that was a, a strip club on top of a mikveh built back in the 1600. It's been discovered again, and they're going to make an attempt to turn it into a place that Jews are going to want to visit. That is absolutely mind-boggling. I want to make a, a comment, a new topic. I want to make a comment about the present government in Israel. You know, the government now, headed by Netanyahu, is made up of right-wing and religious parties. And the question is, uh, would, could this government fall? Now, 
Netanyahu has been able to keep his coalition in check, and the reason that he keeps his coalition in check is exactly the opposite of why his opponents have said that he's not in charge. Their reasoning is that Netanyahu needs his coalition partners more than they need him because he, he's, um, he has some court cases coming up, and as long as he's prime minister, he doesn't have to worry about these court cases. However, what's interesting, none of the other parties, the religious parties or the right-wing parties, could form a government without Netanyahu. And the prime minister could theoretically attempt to form a unity government with several other parties. And that's unlikely. Uh, Because people like Smutrich and Ben-Gvir from small parties actually need Netanyahu more than he needs them. For them to have legitimacy and to be able to wield political power, they need him. Now, the biggest threat facing the present government coalition is coming right now. It's the fight over the new conscription law a draft legislation that has been on hold in some way or another for about six years and will set allocations for draftees from the ultra-Orthodox sector. In other words, it will give the ultra-Orthodox a chance not to serve in the army. Now, the Haredi parties, the ultra-Orthodox parties, made threats that if the new bill was not passed at the beginning of the coming Knesset session, which is October 15, they will walk out of the government. And more so, they said that the final aspects of judicial reform Netanyahu would like to pass will not go to debate until their bill concerning Haredi drafting into the army is passed. So the Orthodox parties have made this a condition. So the government caved into this request, and now discussions are ongoing between the government, the army, the IDF, the defense ministry, and the Haredi parties, the ultra-Orthodox parties, about how best to proceed. Their current requests, which are blanket exemptions, and lowering the exemption age from 26 to 22, um, has been seen as a nod as a non-starter. So, Hebrew media has reported that Netanyahu is seeking a compromise that would include drafting Haredim for national service rather than for military service. Now, the so far, the reports are that such an idea is being rejected by the ultra-Orthodox parties. So, there uh, so it's a problem here because the Likud, which is Netanyahu's party, is not in favor of giving all these draft exemptions to the Haredis. So it's too soon to tell whether Netanyahu will be able to control what even Likud sources have been reportedly saying their voters cannot support. Now, the prime minister is very clever politically. There's no two ways about it. He, he may solve this issue temporarily because the Haredi parties know that their best chance of getting a favorable deal will be from Netanyahu. 
If the government falls, a new government comes, the Haredim will find themselves either out of the government or they simply won't, won't be able to get anybody to meet their demands. So it's very interesting. We don't know what's going to be, but if these parties, you know, it's an interesting thing, by the way. I, I don't know if I've addressed this report uh, before. When I lived in the United States, uh, you know, the you had representatives uh, in the Congress and in the Senate, but the, for example, the uh, senators represent a state, and they have to represent everybody in the state. The representatives represent a local district, and they have to represent everyone in the local district. That's not true in Israel. The religious parties only represent a part of the spectrum of religious and so forth. In other words, they don't really represent everyone. When, when you're a congressman, for example, in, in the United States, you have to represent everyone in your district regardless of their politics, regardless of religion. But here in Israel, you have parties, particularly the religious parties, who think that they only represent a certain cut of the people. And that's one of the biggest problems in Israel. And, it, and it, unfortunately, we see it in the politics. So now we have a situation where Netanyahu doesn't want to see his uh, government fall apart, there's a good chance he would not be prime minister any longer in a new government. He's having to give in to these special interest groups. So we'll see what will be. I'll be back after the break. Hi, everyone. This is Andrea Semento from Jerusalem inviting you to drop everything and join me on my show. Pull up a chair. We'll visit this week's quirky stories, meet fabulous guests, and discover my Israel. Together, we'll laugh, shout, and explain the topics that make us say, hey, we've got to talk about that. So get comfortable and pull up a chair with me, Andrea Semento, every Thursday on Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. When I first came to Israel more than 50 years ago, it was very common for people to go into Arab cities, and I don't mean Arab cities in Israel proper, but to go into Arab cities in that area that Israel had conquered in the Six-Day War, places like Beit Lechem, Bethlehem, or Huara and the center of the country, or Kalkilia, which is right across the way from uh, Farsaba. And it was very, very common for Jews to spend time there, particularly on Shabbat, when many Jewish stores were closed. They would go into those areas to have dinner, to have lunch, uh, to get their cars fixed, because the Arabs uh, did the work much more cheaply than Jews did. I remember when uh, I was teaching at a school in Cholon, uh, south of Tel Aviv, uh, my students uh, saw my car. They saw that the car was sort of in bad shape, and they volunteered to take the car to Bethlehem to have it fixed by uh, an Arab, in an Arab garage. Now, those days are gone. Jews don't wander into those uh, Arab areas except by mistake. 
what happened was that several weeks ago, a Jew and his son uh, went to get their car washed in a place called Huara, if I'm not mistaken. And um, they, they weren't settlers. They weren't occupying anybody. They actually ca came from the city of Ashdod, which is on the coast, 25 miles south of Tel Aviv. What they did, they went to Hawara to get their car washed. They were minding their own business. And what happened was a Palestinian Arab terrorist walked up to them and murdered them in cold blood and disappeared into the crowd. As of today, which is a week and a half or two weeks later, to the best of my knowledge, they have not yet caught the murderer. Now, what were these people doing? They were spending money in a Palestinian shop. They were having conversations with the Arab residents, and they took their car to the car wash 25 miles away from their own home. Now, obviously, the, I think, I think it's obvious, that the attack could not have been premeditated, since the killer had no way of knowing that these two men would be in Hawara that day to wash their car. Which means that the murderer was actually doing some something else. Apparently, he was doing whatever he was doing when someone told him that Jews were seen nearby. So he walked over to see for himself. Now think about this for a moment. The Palestinian Authority's level anti-Jewish incitement and propaganda is so intense in the schools, in their radio, in their television, in their mosques. The anti-Jewish incitement is so intense and terrorists are permitted to operate freely in those areas of, that are governed by the Palestinian Authority, like the town of Hawara, that what happened on a random day when two Jews went to get their car washed, there happened to be a random Palestinian terrorist nearby. He happened to be carrying a loaded gun, or he picked one up, and he was ready, on a moment's notice, to murder two unarmed civilian Jews. He didn't know they were going to be there. He heard they were there. He went. He saw. He murdered. And he walked away. He didn't even need a getaway car. According to media reports, he fled on foot. He was so confident that the residents of Hawara would not oppose him, and so sure there'd be no Palestinian policemen nearby who might interfere, that he simply walked away after murdering two Jews. Now, it's interesting. Uh, the, the, uh, these two people came from Ashdod, these two Jews. They didn't realize that in the area of the Palestinian Authority, apparently, 
It's a crime to have your car washed when you're Jewish. Now, what was the response of the American administration? That is the Biden administration. Last Saturday, Saturday a week ago, about a quarter to two, soon after receiving reports of the murders, the State Department's Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs issued the administration's official response. They did this via the social media platform called X, formerly known as Twitter. And here is the full text of what the American State Department said, and I quote, We unequivocally condemn today's terrorist attack in the West Bank that killed two Israelis. The United States expresses its condolences to their families and calls for immediate steps to end the violence and incitement to violence. Unquote. Now, that's a statement. What was missing in that statement is a very key word. The word that is missing is the word Palestinian. There wasn't any indication, not even the slightest indication, as to who killed the two Israelis. And there was not the slightest hint at who it is that the U.S. expects, expects to take, in their words, immediate steps to end violence and incitement to violence. Who do they expect to do it? There's an awful political logic behind the Biden administration's deeply troubling statement. Of course, the administration could not refrain from condemning the attack that would infuriate Jewish voters, particularly in crucial states that Biden would like to win if he runs for president next year. The uh, the, uh, the the president's uh, re-election campaign is getting underway already. He said he's going to run. He wants to make sure to get the Jewish vote in those very crucial states like Pennsylvania, New York, and California. So he didn't want the uh, he didn't want to condemn the attack that would infuriate Jewish voters. But the administration doesn't want to remind the public that Palestinian Arabs murdered Jews at a simple thing like a car wash. That would undermine the crusade to create a Palestinian state along Israel's old nine-mile-wide borders. Because who in their right mind would agree to establish a sovereign state next door that would be ruled by bloodthirsty murderers. In addition, the Biden administration does not want to specifically say anything about the Palestinian Authority. To take telling the Palestinian Authority to take the steps to end violence and incitement, because then, if they did so, the administration would have to follow up 
and do something when a Palestinian Authority refuses to take the necessary steps. Therefore, the, the U.S. administration refuses to tell the Palestinian Authority to take the necessary steps because they know that they won't. Now, it's interesting, by the way, the Palestinian Authority agreed in the Oslo Agreements, I think it was in 1994, which is like 30 years ago. They agreed to arrest terrorists, disarm and outlaw terror groups, extradite terrorists to Israel, and end all anti-Jewish and anti-Israel incitement in the schools and the news media. That is what the Palestinian Authority committed itself to 30 years ago. Yet, it has never done one single thing in these areas. For the Biden administration demanded the Palestinian Authority fulfill these obligations to which it committed itself and then face up to their refusal to do so would impede the march to a Palestinian state that the Biden administration is behind and which the Biden administration uh, supports. So that's how we ended up with this mealy-mouthed State Department so-called condemnation. Condemnation matter only if the Biden administration is prepared to name the party that is being condemned, which they did not name the party in their statement. The Condolences to the people who are harmed are meaningful only if the United States is prepared to take steps to help ensure that it won't be this happening again. Anything less than that is a farce, and the, the American administration response to the murder of two Jews who simply went somewhere to get their car washed is simply nonsense. And I'm sure others have pointed it out, but you really think about it. Two Jews were murdered simply for being there, and they were handy targets for a terrorist. If those two Jews would not have shown up to get their car washed in an Arab city, that murderer would not be a murderer. Maybe a murderer in some days later, that murder would not have occurred. Two innocent Jews were killed because of the propaganda and the educational system and the Palestinian Authority, something they promised 30 years ago they would not do, and something to this day they have not been held responsible for. And the American administration knows, knows this. In this the, the State Department essentially refuses to say that anything the Palestinians do isn't good. The word Palestinian doesn't appear in any of their statements about this murder of Jews in the Palestinian area. And that is really shameful. Now I want to change the subject 
and talk about something that they call in Israel. I haven't heard this referred to in the United States. There's something called the deep, deep state. Now, you hear that word all the time here in Israel, and you have to ask yourself, who and what is this deep st state that is always being referred to? I don't know if they, this term is used to describe uh, any other country. According to uh, one expert, this deep state is made up of the heads of security, the heads of the economy, former judges of the Supreme Court, the medical personnel, and the senior bureaucrats who stay in position no matter who's in the government. They get together, according to some people, and they plan all the petitions and protests and the sanctions, and that is the true focus of power in Israel today. That is what some people believe, and I don't know if it's true or not. For example, there have been demonstrations for months and months now, and there are literally tens of thousands of Israeli flags. They're imported from uh, China, mostly. Somebody is importing these tens of thousands of flags. And they're not quite, not quite sure it is. It could well be that there is a regime of bureaucrats and jurists. I don't know. People refer to the deep state. Now, it's, it's interesting. Uh, yes, there was a, in Harvard's newspaper, there was a, an article, and they said that people who have met with Prime Minister Netanyahu in recent months have heard lengthy lectures that seem to have been taken out of some like conspiracy play. The Prime Minister told them that even though he keeps being re-elected, in reality, the country is controlled by the deep state. According to the Prime Minister, the deep state is a regime of bureaucrats and jurists. So, um, so there are people who believe there is this thing called the deep, the deep state. And one of the people who believes it is our Prime Minister. So the question we really have to ask ourselves, the really pertinent question is, what percentage of the Israeli public believe there is this, this, this deep state made of senior bureaucrats in particular? So uh, that's very interesting. I don't know. I don't know what people really think. So when you hear the word deep state mentioned about Israel, Apparently, it means the heads of security, as I said, particularly the judicial system and the senior bureaucrats. Now, I do not know whether or not these people get together and plan their actions for the week. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. When you read the newspapers in Israel and you read the editorials, you keep seeing references to the deep state. By the way, I never heard that in the United States, that there's a deep state. Only in Israel they talk about a deep state. So whether there is one or not, I really don't know. 
Apparently, those who believe they're one, there is such a thing, believe it's made of the senior bureaucrats in particular, the judges. Again, I personally don't know, but I, I want the listeners to, to realize this when they, if they ever read news about Israel and you very often see references to the deep state, that's what they mean. It doesn't exist in the United States, and whether it exists in Israel or not, I really don't know. There are those who believe that it does. And it's sort of a weird thing, but I just wanted to give the listeners an idea uh, how this political thinking goes on in Israel. There are particularly those people on the right who think that they are opposed to the deep state. And somehow the deep state runs the country. I don't know if that's true. A lot of people here believe it. Now I go uh, to a totally different subject, but I want to mention particularly it might be of interest to people who uh, outside the country. Uh, I was in Europe for uh, 10 days, and it was quite pleasant there. It was warm summer weather, while here in Israel it was really hot. It's been hot for about six weeks, with temperatures way above 85 and approaching 100 for many areas of the country for about six weeks. And as the world grows hotter, then these blistering summer days have become pretty much routine. One of the problems is the task of supplying electricity is becoming uh, increasingly difficult. Uh, there are demands for fans and air conditioners and fridges, fridges and freezers, and what's happening is that the electrical grids are being overtaxed, and apparently it's going to get worse. By the way, in Jordan, for example, they have a very serious problem because uh, they, de they uh, depend on Israel for much of their electric supply, and Israel needs electricity for its, for its own population. And... Uh, Scientists predict that by the year 2050, much of the Middle East will suffer extreme heat. What is extreme heat? It's defined as an average annual temperature of around 29 degrees Celsius. They say the world is heating up, and if the world is heating up, the place that's heating up the most is the Middle East. So even nations with capacity to provide more power don't want are concerned about the higher costs, but they have to contend with infrastructure that is simply not designed to cope with the increased stress of working harder for longer under hotter conditions. But failing to supply electricity carries economic and political risks, especially for nations whose authoritarian regimes have governed according to a simple role: cheap basic services in exchange for public quiescence. That's what happens in the Middle East, countries like Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria. So what happens is, as soon as they can't provide power, they start getting public protests. Part of the social contract with the government was is service for the people to keep them quiet. This was said by a, an Iraqi economic expert so what's happening is, in this summer's extraordinary heat, many eastern countries 
have instead resorted to mandatory work furloughs or power cuts. The uh, so it, it it's a, it's a problem, and so if if the weather can increases to increase, we're going to have a lot of problems here in the Middle East that you might not have in other parts of the world, and if indeed the uh, it's getting hotter then things are going to get hotter here in the Middle East. I'll be back after the break. You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Uh, there was a uh, an anniversary this week. On August 29th, 1897, the, uh, is the day that Zionism officially emerged at the end of the 19th century as an organized movement with members, elected officials, a detailed program, and the only other trappings of a political, diplomatic apparatus, including fundraising, to establish a Jewish state in Israel. On August 29, 1897, a meeting was held in Basel, Switzerland, and the Basel program was formulated. And by doing so, the program essentially set a plan, an agenda uh, for the Jewish people, and which eventually became the state of Israel. They, the idea was to establish a home for the Jewish people, particularly in the land of Israel, and they wanted to promote settlement in the country and strengthening Jewish feeling and national consciousness about this, the country Palestine. Now, this is this didn't come out of the blue, obviously. It's it's based on the teachings in the Bible, in the Talmud, in the Rabbinic Medrash, and the deliberations of the Gaonim from the 7th to the 11th century. And there are all kinds of halachic laws called uh, mitzvot hatluot ba'aretz. These are the agricultural laws dealing with the land of Israel these are laws which cannot be in any way be met and accomplished outside of the land of Eretz Israel. There are, uh, I remember one time I had occasion to speak, and um, Shai Yishuv Cohen, who was the uh, chief, chief uh, rabbi of Haifa at the time, was uh, had given a lecture at the same place that I was speaking, and he was kind enough and polite, en polite enough, and he came in to hear me, uh, to listen to me speaking to an audience, and he said something very interesting. He said, the 
of the 613 mitzvot, commandments, that we believe that a Jew has to keep, of that 613, there are 58 uh, that deal only with the agricultural aspects of Eretz Yisrael. Now, 58 in uh, Hebrew letters is Chet Nun. Chet Nun, the word Chet Nun is Chen. Chen means something nice. So the rabbi said to me, if you don't have, uh, you don't do the mitzvot in Eretz Yisrael, you have no chen. And uh, I looked up the word in the dictionary, you get an exact meaning. The word chen means, there's a choice of the meanings. It's grace, beauty, charm, loveliness, attractiveness, and uh, preciousness. In other words, if you don't live in Eretz Yisrael, you're missing Chen. That's what the chief rabbi of uh, Haifa said to me at the time. So um, all this body of literature and actions show that the Jewish nationalism is very unique. It involves custom, culture, language, and belief. Now, the, the Messianic movements across the lands of the Jewish diaspora and the prayers are expressing the hope for an eventual return. And this was the premise of the Jews who turned it into a political arm. Now, in other words, they took the, the hope of uh, 1,800 years and turned it into a political arm. And first, the, the, there was a lot of um, opposition. Some was from, um, indeed, Orthodox Jewry, who viewed Zionism as a danger. It was seen as part of the development of modernization that had come out of the Enlightenment of the previous century and a half. And they replaced Judaism with some form of Jewish culture. And it was also a revolt against the traditional diaspora attitude of waiting for the Messiah. In other words, and there are still people like that. Uh, if you go into the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn, or even here in Israel, there are, there are sections of the religious population, even here in Jerusalem, who are not Zionists. They're waiting for the Messiah, and essentially they don't recognize the state of Israel, even though they live here. And uh, there the, are those who, so they were very religious who, who, um, uh, who didn't like political Zionism. And on the other hand, the, uh, the opposite extreme, there were assimilationists who rejected any national identity. They felt that uh, that a Jew could embrace religious worship, and uh, but first, he was a German or an Austrian or a Frenchman or a Russian or an Englishman or an American. The insistence of Zionist Jews can constitute a people and possess a historic homeland was threatening to them. As a matter of fact, uh, there was a 
anti-Zionist resolution at a 1918 uh, meeting of the uh, Reform Rabbis in America, the Central Com Conference of American Rabbis, and um, they really took issue with it. And it. They issued a resolution, which I'll read. The resolution of the Reform in 1918 said, the ideal of, a, of the Jew is not the establishment of a Jewish state, not the reassertion of Jewish nationality, which has long been outgrown. Our survival as a people is not dependent upon the acceptance of Palestine as a homeland of the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, in the autumn of 1918, Reform Rabbi Ephraim Frisch sent a letter to the American president at that time, Woodrow Wilson, in which he opposed a Jewish uh, homeland. He founded what was called the National Committee of Rabbis opposed to Zionism. Interestingly enough, when I moved to Jerusalem, uh, one of my neighbors, a very dear neighbor of mine, was a Reformed rabbi who took an entirely different position. And today, of course, the Reform movement is very Zionist. But in those days, they were violently opposed to Zionism. So, so much at that time did the people distance themselves and oppose political Zionism and the Balfour Declaration, uh, leading Jewish uh, communal heads uh, uh, in England uh, were opposed to the government of the Great Britain in, uh, declaring the uh, Balfour Declaration back in 1918. The uh, in United States, it was seen as a tangible threat to the security of Reform Judaism because they believed that uh, in the diaspora, and they felt if the Jews pushed for nationalism, it would weaken their position in other countries, primarily in the United States. So, uh, as a matter of fact, I came across an article that said in March of 1919, 299 Reform rabbis intervened to attempt to hold President Woodrow Wilson from proclaiming uh, agreement with the Balfour Declaration, and they published a letter in the New York Times. So, a hundred years ago, there were an awful lot of Jews who were opposed to political Zionism, some from the extreme religious right, some from the extreme religious left. The, um, but what they, uh, what they really, and there was a third group, by the way, which was among the founders of the country, the, uh, were the Jews who, uh, who believed in it, and it was a certain messianic zeal that the, the Jews should have their own country, but they more or less interpreted it not in a form of religion, but in the form of a social program. Uh, Jewish Bund, for example, B-U-N-D, was founded in 1897, the same time as the Zionist movement, and these were people who were firmly rooted in Russian or Polish culture. They uh, and they 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 uh, 
wanted very much to have a Jewish country in Eretz Israel, but it was to be a socialist country. As a matter of fact, uh, Golda Meir, one of the heroes of Jewish history, was a confirmed socialist, and when the State of Israel was declared back in 1948, she is supposed to have said, Socialism be a menu. Socialism will, will come to exist in our day in this new Jewish state. So uh, there were all kind of people opposed to Zionism, political Zionism, uh, from the right and from the left. But now, a uh, hundred years after the Basel program, we have, thank God, a Jewish state with a lot of problems. It's a century and a quarter later. There, uh, there are some still uh, uh, don't like the idea of... Uh, of a Jewish state, uh, I'm talking about Jews. They have bad influence on our security and everything like that. Uh, and so, in a sense, the first hundred years, the Zionist political Zionism really made a miracle. And uh, this is the anniversary of the Basel program. Obviously, we have a long way to go. I think most people realize that they should realize that Jews had not been left in peace to get on with their lives, and that's the very reason many have to identify as Zionist. We, ha we have to work to actively reclaim that term. It's unacceptable that the non-Jewish world feels free and able to, uh, to set up institutions opposed to the Jewish state. And this has been going on since Zionism began. It's very important to identify as a Zionist today, not because we're fighting to reestablish sovereignty in our land, because the non-Jewish world has a, has a history of uh, appropriating different words and turning Zionism into something evil. A, uh, as a matter of fact, a, a new institute called the Institute for the Critical Study of Zionism uh, just came into being. And uh, they're going to have two inaugural conferences in October of this year, one of the uh, University of California in Santa Cruz, California, and the second at NYU uh, Law School in New York. And uh, they battle, and, and they want to support, the, they want to delink the study of Zionism from Jewish studies. So what it really is, an attack on the very essence of Jewish identity. Zionism is part of being Jewish. Even people who are not political Zionists are, in a sense, Zionists because they believe this little land in the Middle East belongs to the Jewish people. Now, there's some people who don't believe in political Zionism, but and they still pray in the direction of Jerusalem three times a day. So political Zionism came to being 125 years ago, and there are a lot of people who are Zionists, and but not political Zionists. 
and a lot of people who are anti-Zionist that are opposed to any form of Zionism, political or otherwise. It's a very complicated situation when you really think about it. We are an ancient civilization, and like no other, we existed for two millennia without our homeland. That itself is a form of miracle, and I think that deserves respect. And it's our responsibility, I think, as Zionists and people living in Israel in particular, to narrate our story, to see to it that even our our politicians here in Israel and our people in our in our foreign affairs ministry have to, when they go out to the world, they have to really explain our position. We're simply not another country. We're, we're a nation that has come back to its homeland after 2,000 years, and it's not anything like this that has ever been done by anybody else. We came into existence at the same time as the ancient Greeks and the Romans, and they just simply ain't here no more. They're not around, and we're still here. And as I said at the beginning of the program, the uh, August 29th is is the birthday of taking that belief and turning it into a, a political movement. Because in in the world today, you have to have political movements to get political things done. And the turning the the hope for Zion Zion into a political movement was a major change in what was happening to the Jewish people. And despite all the hardships, it, it has produced the state of Israel. By the way, it's another thing. When Israel came into being in May 1948, uh, nobody was sure what it was going to be called. The UN had voted at the end uh, of the previous year to divide the land of Palestine into a Jewish state and into an Arab state. The Arabs, of course, refused to set up a state. They, They decided rather to try to prevent the Jewish state from coming into being. But when the Jewish state was set up, in May of 1948, and the proclamation of independence uh, was proclaimed, everybody was waiting to hear what the Jewish state was going to be called. Many people it was going to, thought it would be called Yehuda, Judah, but uh, Ben-Gurion made the decision that the state of Israel would be called the state of Israel. And so we've gotten used to it, but if you go back to prior to Prior to 1948, it wasn't a sure thing that the state would get this name. Anyhow, uh, as I said a moment ago, and I don't want to uh, beat this subject to death, this is an anniversary. In August 1897, the Basel program was formulated, and through all the struggles, and we continue to struggle, there is a Jewish state that has problems, but we've managed to bring in millions of people here. When the state came into being in 1948, there were 600,000 Jews living here. Today, there are 7 million Jews living here. 
uh, including uh, almost two million other people who are not Jewish, and had the state come into being in 1939 rather than uh, uh, 1948, a lot millions of Jews would have been saved from the uh, what happened in Europe when six million Jews were killed. So it's imperfect, but it is our baby, and that's the important point. I may have said this before, but I'll, re I'll repeat it. Living in Israel is a matter of faith. And um, to take a matter of faith, turn it into a matter of taste, is the worst form of bad taste. Jews prayed for 2,000 years, and it was a form of pregnancy, and in 1948 he gave birth to the state. It's only 78 years old now, but in terms of nationhood, it's only a baby. It hasn't learned to walk properly, but we can't abandon it because it's our baby. We have to teach to stand properly, and that's the responsibility of those of us who live here. And it's a historical responsibility came to our generation. So we have to do what we can to meet those responsibilities. Thanks for listening. Till next time, Gay Shapiro signing off.